Welcome to the American Valor Podcast, a section of the Act of Valor Award Foundation. The foundation is a unique intersection of Major League Baseball, the United States Navy, and Marine Corps, representing the 37 Baseball Hall of Famers who serve in World War II, led by Chief Petty Officer Bob Feller. The foundation's mission is to educate the younger generation about the honor, courage, and commitment of the greatest generation. Our goal is to help our country become a little stronger. My name is Nathaniel Cameron from Ohio University. My name is Tyler Buckholtz from James Madison University. And my name is Colin Kirk, also from James Madison University. We are interns for the Active Valor Award Foundation, recognizing and honoring those Americans who support our servicemen and women by means of the Bob Feller story to educate the youth of today on the lessons of citizenship, service to one's country, sacrifice in terms of great national need, and legacy. Our goal is to tell the story of American valor, no matter when or where it has happened. We will bring Americans' timeless, true stories of valor to life through conversations with individuals who have acted with courage. We will search for stories of American valor, and we will bring these stories to you, stories you want to hear. Today we are joined by Mr. Lou Bernardi, Chairman of the Baseball Committee for the Active Valor Award Foundation. Steve Curtis, a guest we previously had on, oversees the educational component. Lou here focuses on the baseball aspect of the foundation. Mr. Bernardi is the pitching coach at the United States Merchant Marine Academy in Kings Point, New York. He played baseball at New York Institute of Technology and professionally at the independent ranks in the Golden League, Can-Am League, and New York State League. He's a published writer for the Inside Pitch Magazine, a co-founder for the Bats for Buddies charity, and an active member of the base, American Baseball Coaches Association and Association of Professional Ballplayers of America. Mr. Bernardi, thank you for taking time to join us today on the American Valor Podcast. If you will, just please tell us a little bit about yourself and your career. Guys, thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys today. And I think this is a great thing that we're doing with the foundation to try to expand our outreach and, and, and meet some new individuals who might want to get involved in our goal and our foundation. Um, my passion is baseball. It's plain and simple. Uh, as long as I can remember, I've been involved in baseball. I was a former Division One baseball player at New York Tech, like you just alluded to. I had a nice career under a very good head coach where I learned a lot, not just about baseball, but about being a man. And, and, and what it meant and the sacrifices we had to make as a college athlete. I had a very brief independent professional career where I quickly learned that making the major leagues probably wouldn't happen. So I was given uh, an opportunity to coach. And nine years later, here I am today. And I, I think I'm at the best place I've been throughout my coaching career. I've had uh, the opportunity to work at the Division One, Two, II, and Three level, and now I'm at the NCAA Division Three Service Academy level at the United States Merchant Marine Academy, where we just finished up our season last week, and uh, we're having a great time here. We're trying to bring this program back to where it needs to be, and like you said, baseball is what is what I do, and uh, it's what I've been doing for the last 15 to 16 years. So you just mentioned uh, you're a D1 player. Uh, you had 160 appearances. Adam Ottavino said he could strike out Babe Ruth every time if he pitched against him. How many out of a hundred? How many times would you strike him out 
And how many homers would you give up? <laughs> That's a, uh, Adam's a lot better than I was. I mean, he's a, he's a major league pitcher now with the Yankees. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think Babe Ruth might have gotten 100 hits off me if I pitched the <laughs> um, So back back towards the foundation, uh, how did you get involved with the foundation? What led you to where you are today? So Peter Fertig and I um, connected, believe it or not, through LinkedIn. And we had a, a, a lot of common interests and a lot of common friends. And it seemed like we both cared and had a passion for baseball and had a passion for the military. And when I saw that the foundation connected the two, um, it led me to reach out to him. We met for lunch. We spoke about ideas. I started as an advisor, not thinking that it would lead to anything substantial, but I helped when I could. Um, I took part in conference calls like we continue to do today. I was on email lists where I was able to keep track and up to date on, on progress throughout the foundation. And then from an advisor, he elevated me to the chairman of the baseball committee. Along my role there, I, I, I was instrumental in on-field presentations throughout the country. And from there, Peter asked me if I would be willing to sit on the board. And without hesitation, I, I, I took it as a, as a complete honor to be on the board of such a prestigious foundation with, with very well-respected individuals. And that's where we are today. So I started as an advisor not thinking anything. And two and a half years later, here I am on the board of directors for an amazing organization and foundation. Well, what are some of your primary responsibilities as the head of the baseball committee? So we try to, we, we try to make headway with major league baseball and the clubs and the players any way we can. Um, one of the avenues we do it is through social media. We have done a lot of work on field during the ceremonies where we're able to interact with players and interact with staffers at each ballpark. And we're just making sure that they know that we exist. We're making sure that we, they know that we appreciate their hospitality every time we're in their ballpark and just making sure that the, the that the common grounds between the foundation and the clubs, that, that that pipeline stays strong and that they, they realize that we really do appreciate everything that they do because there are, there are a lot of, organizations that are looking to do similar things but we, we we truly believe that we do it the best and we it only works with club support with major league baseball support and it seems like we have it so the baseball committee is really just trying to strengthen those ties create new relationships and, and just move forward um, into the future together so as a member of the board of the active valor award foundation what does the word valor mean to you so for me, the word valor as a coach, because that's what I do, that's my real profession as a coach, as an educator, the word valor to me is just the backbone. And I, I use it a lot with my players, and I've used it a lot in the past, even before I came here um, to the foundation. And it's just the backbone. It, it, it's the courage to lead. It's the courage to go out and be successful. It's the courage to go out and compete. And that's one of the messages I try to get through to all my players that I've coached at the division one, two, and three level all over the country through various summer leagues is to have that valor, to have that chip on your shoulder, to be the guy that's willing to go out there and compete, to stand alone when necessary. And I think it's a mindset. It's a culture. So to me, valor, it's everything that epitomizes what a true competitor 
would bring to 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 the element of competition in a baseball game or in a football game in anything and in the and, and in the foundation standpoint as i begin to read and and learn even more about mr feller's background you talk about somebody with valor somebody with courage somebody with a backbone somebody with with firm principles here's a guy who left at the height of his career self enlisted into the navy probably lost close to a hundred wins, hundreds of thousands of dollars, because he cared about something that was greater than anything else. He cared for a cause. He wanted to defend his country. It's an unbelievable story. And the word, the word valor really does have many different meanings, obviously from a military standpoint, but I try to tie it back in to an athletic standpoint. And my guys really appreciate it when I use it. We use that word. So getting back to your coaching, when I was getting recruited for baseball by VMI, they told me that it was school first, military second, and baseball third. How is coaching different at a military academy than at other places you've coached at? Right. So for, for me, the recruiting process has always been pretty similar. And I go by a three-pronged test, okay? And this is when I, when I was at the Division One level. Even when I was coaching a little bit at the professional ranks, I still, I still followed a similar structure. And to me, you're, you're, you're spot on with the three prongs. To me, you're always recruiting the person first. So if you're not going to fit, if you're not going to fit the mold of a program socially and economically, um, then I don't want that person representing, whether it's the academy, um, whether it's a travel team, whether it's an institution. First and foremost, you recruit the person. So if you don't check the te- if you don't check the box for person, regardless of how good you are. For two and three, if you're not a good person right off the bat, it's a bad fit. So number one is first and foremost, it's the person first. The second box, we'll call it, that has to be checked in order for me to really consider recruiting an athlete is they have to be a good student. They have to be a good student. So you're only as good as you are in the classroom. If you're failing in the classroom, then chances are you're not going to make it to the field anyway. So academics is a huge portion of college athletics in any sport across the country. So it's the person first, it's the student second, it's the athlete third, okay? So we really do look for the total package when we're recruiting. We need somebody who's well-rounded in society and who's going to represent themselves in the program in a proper manner. We need somebody who's going to be able to handle the time management in the classroom and, and manage a rigorous academic schedule and we also need somebody who's going to compete and have that valor like we just said on the field that strong backbone who's going to be a team player who, who's going to be willing to make sacrifices for the better good of the program we're going to need that type of person to go on and be a college athlete that's what we're really looking for coaching at a service academy different from coaching at the other d1 schools and i believe you coached a little bit at the new york uh, development pro league level. Uh, how is that all different um, when the military is involved? It's it's the it's the type of person. It's the level of commitment. Um, it's the level of priority. Everybody cares. Everybody wants to succeed. It's just the the the, the difference is the amount of time we have. That that's really the only difference. Obviously, at at the highest level, there's more time dictated to athletics. Um, and that's mandated through NCAA. Obviously, at the professional level, all you're doing is coaching. So the, the real difference, the kid is the same. 
and and I've seen every kid, and I'll and I'll have the argument with anybody. We just finished our season, our season the other day, and you can't tell me that just because this is a, a Division three program that these kids don't compete, these kids aren't passionate, these kids don't show emotion. Every level, whether it's Division one, two, or three. Everybody has those those tangibles. The only difference is the amount of time. The amount of time that we're physically able to be with our players in the off season, um, the length of the season themselves. But the kids, the kids, they're all the same. Honestly, they're all the same. They all care. They all grind it out. They all truly want to succeed, and they all truly, obviously, have a passion. Otherwise, they wouldn't be playing college athletics. When you start with a, a high school athlete who character and the qualities that you're looking for in a baseball player and a student, what is it like to watch that player grow? And how have you seen baseball impact their lives and complement the, the other aspects of their lives as they're a student athlete? Right. So, I mean, I, I don't have I'm not hands on with too many college athletes because there are restrictions and limitations to what you can do as a college coach. But in somebody I'm recruiting, let's say as a sophomore and watching them progress over the years, it is fun to see development uh, in a player, even if I'm not directly involved. To the second part of your question, though, and this I can relate to every coaching stop that I've ever had, what baseball can do to somebody is, is tremendous. Just the self-confidence, the awareness, the, the, the body language, the image that one portrays, Baseball, unlike any other sport, has the ability to really change somebody for the better. It's a sport. It's obviously a team sport, but it's a team sport that requires a lot of individual success. And that individual success can can oftentimes get the better of somebody in a good way. And I, you know, it's it's one thing to be arrogant and cocky, but it's another thing to be very confident. And I think, and I've seen it even in my own career and as a player and as a coach. When things are going good, you feel to be feeling a little bit better. And that's what baseball can do to somebody. It, it can really impact the life in a positive way. It's also a game of failure. So you're going to have to deal with adversity throughout your career when you're, when you're playing baseball. So it, it, it really teaches life lessons unlike any other sport. It really does. Yeah, and as a coach, I coached a travel team. Um, so I can kind of relate to that, watching them grow um, and turn from middle school travel players into high school players. For you, you've had 60 players sign professional contracts, highlighted by Tim Ingram and Jared Finkel. What's that like when you hear those guys' names get called in the draft or when they sign that professional contract? And also, what is your pay cut of the first contract? My, uh, what do you mean pay cut? Uh, it's, just a, it's just a joke. <laughs> I get nothing. I get nothing. Um, nor, nor, nor do I want anything. Um, they deserve it. I've, I've said this a lot over the years. I will never take credit for any of my players' success. They do it on their own. I'm simply here just as a communicator and somebody to, uh, to, 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 to spread information and to help make sure that they stay on a proper course. But it, it's surreal. Um, those guys, to have your name called in a draft is something that you'll remember for the rest of your life. It didn't happen to me, 
But for my players that it did happen to, it, it, it's something that they cherish forever, and it's something that nobody can ever take away from. So as a player, you were able to play for Mike Marshall, who is an all-star for the Dodgers, and Benny Casillo, who coached for the minor leagues. As a coach now, how does playing for those guys impact your coaching style? Um, and do you find yourself trying to mirror some of the things that they did? Right. I mean, they, they were both great, great coaches and managers in, the, in, in their own way. I, I, and I, my coaching style and philosophy is not dictated from one or two individuals. It's dictated from 15 years of, of baseball experience as a player. And I'm learning every day. Um, I, I'm a firm believer that if you think you know all the answers to baseball, then it's time to, to, to retire and do something else. And the biggest coach that has impacted my career was my college coach. He's probably my mentor, Coach Bob Hirschfield. He's a New York Tech Hall of Famer and soon to be hopefully a ABCA Hall of Famer. And he's probably the one, like I said earlier on in the podcast, he taught me how to be a man more than a baseball player. And that's what I'm trying to do for my players is give them life lessons along the way. And if we can do it while we're, while, while, while we're having some fun and playing baseball, then that's really the goal in our mission is to instill leadership qualities on these guys once they're done here. Because, you know, for some, baseball is just an, an, aven an avenue to escape reality. Because, let's be honest, there's not many of us that are going to go make the million-dollar contract in the major leagues. And there's a good chance we're going to have to do something else. But if we can learn how to be a better person, if we can learn how to be a better man, if we can learn those time management skills – those leadership skills through the game of baseball, then as a coach, I think I did my job. So I, I try to find the good and the bad from everybody I've ever worked with, head coaches, assistant coaches, and I try to piece together and create my own mindset, my own philosophy on how somebody should communicate and how somebody should interact as a coach when it comes to baseball. So I was I was just kind of curious, and I'm sure some of our listeners would also be curious. What does the average day look like for a Merchant Marine uh, Academy baseball player um, in terms of trying to juggle schoolwork with practice and the, their duties involved with the Merchant Marines? So right. like, what, I mean, what does their average day look like? It, it, it varies um, depending on what division you're at. So, you know, I could, I could tell you that when I was coaching Division One baseball, that those guys were – we were practicing in the morning, uh, five days a week in the fall, three, three days a week in the fall. We were lifting. We were doing video. So, I mean, it, it's time consuming. It's a commitment. There, there, there's obviously a balance of athletics and academics. So it takes a lot. Like I keep saying, it takes a lot to be a college athlete. And regardless of where you are, there's going to be time management issues. There's going to be there's going to be times where you 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 need to study and you might miss a practice. There's going to be times where you, we're on the road and you might miss a birthday party. So there's sacrifices. You know, the day in the life it, it's a grind. It's a grind and, and and it's not easy and it's not meant for everybody. But if you can get through it, if you can get through it, then you're better off in the end. Is there any advice uh, you'd want to give to? Uh... Uh, high school athlete who's striving to play at the next level? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. The advice I would give to them is be prepared because there's a misconception, and I've said this a lot over the years, there's a misconception in the college recruiting process that 
there's a place for everybody. It's not necessarily true. This playing college athletics is not is not a right. I'm a firm believer that it's a privilege. So if somebody wants to do it, and when I've when I've done consulting and advising on the college recruiting process to families, the first question I ask is, do you want to do this? And if the answer is maybe or I think so, I usually tell them it's not for you. The answer has to be a stern yes. And if the answer is a stern yes, then there's a lot of work that has to go into it. So the biggest piece of advice, if, there, if you're going to do it, don't do it halfway. If you, if you want to pursue college volleyball, college soccer, college golf, whatever it might be, if you want to compete at the highest level that you're physically able to compete at, and represent the academy, rep- represent the institution, represent the program, represent the team, whatever it might be, then you need to do it and you need to do it the right way. So that's the only real piece of advice I have is if you're going to do it, don't waste your time. Don't waste anybody else's time because this is not for everybody. This is a privilege to, to call yourself a college athlete at any level and at any school in the country. For those uh, people interested in, in um, college athletics and, and the people who do find themselves uh, committed to it, how is college athletics, uh, whether baseball or, or other sports, changing? And how is technology playing a role in um, uh, what's going on on the field, and especially in your role as a coach? Right. So the, to the first part, college athletics – I'm a firm believer can set you up for the rest of your life. I've had an opportunity to speak with a lot of business owners over the last two years. And the first thing I ask them, do you hire student athletes? And almost instantaneously, the answer is yes. And we begin to see the traits and the qualities that athletes create while they're in college, time management, personalities, ability to work with others, um, the a chain of command, dealing with dealing with authority, discipline. So when you begin to add up all these qualities that a college athlete goes through over the course of his or her four-year career at a college, that works perfectly in, in the, I'm going to put quote-unquote real world, when they have to go out and apply for a job. So to me, what you learn, to me, you learn leadership more in the field than the classroom. And I, I, I'm using myself. As an example from that, I know for a fact my four years as a player at New York Tech, as much as I learned in the classroom and, and, and appreciated my, my experience with my professors, I learned more about who I am today and how to treat others and how to interact with society. I learned more of that in the dugout, on the field, and in the clubhouse than I would ever have learned in the classroom. And, and I'm using myself as an example for that. As far as technology is concerned, I think you you bring up a good point that the game and the evolution of baseball is changing. Um, Whether it's changing for the good or the bad, I don't know, but you have to adapt. There's a good saying, you adapt or you die. So baseball is adapting to the times. It's a technology-driven system right now where analytics is huge. The other day I I was on a call with um, a bunch of prospective college students that that asked me for – some advice on how to get into baseball. And I said, the best advice is to go in and start, start as a video guy with an organization, take an internship, 
be a video guy, be a, statist, a statistician, learn how to work the inner workings of, 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 a, of a front rush system or a sabermetric system or a hit tracks device and le learn the algorithms, learn the number database driven systems. And to me, that's the new wave of baseball. I hope we don't completely lose sight of the old school approach where the eyes still matter because I don't think numbers can tell you somebody's competitive drive and somebody's competitive nature, but the raw data analytics does give you a lot of information and that's the way baseball seems to be going. And a lot of the organizations, that's, that's how their lineups are projected and that's how trades are being made today. So you have to adapt to it, otherwise you're going to fall behind. As a pitching coach, uh, I'm just kind of curious as to what your thoughts are on some of the changes that are being made at the major league level, um, starting with the limit on mountain visits and then the talk about maybe a pitch clock in the future. Um, what your thoughts are on something like that getting right, so implemented in baseball? It really has nothing to do with pitching per se. It's, it's pace of play. Um, you know, I think Major League Baseball and baseball as a whole always, always looked at the the pace of play and the length of a nine-inning game uh, being too long compared to the other four major sports, the duration of the full game. So, I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a pitching issue. I think it's more of a pace of play issue. I think Major League Baseball is making strides at that. I, I, I think there's bigger issues that they should be looking at other than pace of play. I think the average fan is too old. I think there needs to be a, an increase in diversity. I, I, I think the, the average price to take a family to a game is too expensive. So I do think Major League Baseball is attacking all these issues, but pace of play is one of many things that they need, that, 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 that they need to better right now. You've had a lot of positive interactions with Major League players. We just saw... Uh, you just had Yasiel Puig uh, to the facility in Kings Point. What, what's your what's the most positive interaction you've had with a nominee or just a player in general um, that maybe shows a side of the MLB that you know it's they could great, still be no, competitors that we a, don't always see? It's a great question. It's a great question, and I can't give you one name. But what I can say is that I'm I'm very proud that there's a foundation like this that's that highlights the good because of all the interactions I've had with players over the years on field and off the field. And we, when I introduce myself and tell them what I do, they say, thank you to us because a lot of these players, they don't have to do anything other than throw a baseball or hit a baseball. That's their job. That's their career. That's how they put food on the tables for their families. And that's okay. But this special group that we highlight, this special group that, that we nominate each year truly does care and goes above and beyond what's asked of them. All they're asked to do if they play for a major league team is play baseball. All the ancillary stuff is on their own. So the group, that, the group of players that we recognize is an elite group of players in its own right. And it's amazing to see because they don't, they don't necessarily always want people to know what they're doing you know there's a saying that if you that if you donate money just to, to 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 let people know that you're donating you're doing it for the wrong reason and this group of players that we've been able to recognize over the last seven years now 
only two and a half while I was on board. But these group of players, it's unbelievable, their stories. They really do care. And another thing that I say a lot is if you have a platform, and, and obviously as a Major League Baseball player, they have a serious platform. If you're not trying to better the good of a cause with that platform, then your platform is wasted. So the, the, the players that I've been able to interact with, I make sure that they know that I appreciate what they're doing, that we appreciate what they're doing, and to continue it. Because a lot of players, they show up to the, to the game and they go home. And there's nothing wrong with that. But for those select few that go a little bit more than what's asked, I mean, we're all grateful for what they're doing. Uh, thank you for all you do to support the Bob Feller Active Valor Foundation. Mr. Bernardi, thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Active Valor podcast. We appreciate your support as a board member, and thank you again for joining us. Guys, it was a pleasure talking to you, and uh, hopefully we continue to do great work for the foundation, and hopefully we, we begin to, to really turn some heads in the, in the Major League Baseball and the uh, service member community. For our listeners, thank you for listening. To learn more about the Active Valor Foundation and the 37 Hall of Famers who served in World War II, please visit our website at www.activevalorward.org. Thank you for listening.